Welcome to We Are ACHE of Massachusetts, a podcast series produced by the Massachusetts chapter of the American College of Healthcare Executives. This series features educational and inspiring conversations with leading game changers in the healthcare field, offering insight into the challenges of healthcare professionals in the 21st century. Now, here's your host, Jordan Rich. Thanks for joining us. In this edition of the podcast, we're bringing you our special Equity in Healthcare series, where we're taking a look at current diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI initiatives in healthcare through interviews with leaders in the field who have done the work and been there. We're going to dig into the impact of DEI-focused projects on patients and the healthcare workforce. We'll also discuss how you can bring successful DEI initiatives to your organization. Since 1971, Fenway Health has been working to make life healthier for the people in their neighborhoods. The LGBTQIA community, people living with HIV AIDS, and the broader population. Joining us today is Carl Shortino, Executive Vice President of External Relations for Fenway Health. Yeah, Fenway Health is a community health center at its core where we provide comprehensive medical care, behavioral health, optometry, dentistry, the full range of of medical services, but we're unique compared to a lot of uh, typical community health centers in that we also do a range of other um, education, advocacy, policy, research, and a bunch of public health programs to reach some of the more marginalized communities, particularly in the HIV space. So it's a pretty broad array of services that we ended up engaging in as an organization. Can we jump right in and talk about getting to zero and what that program's about and the the importance of that in your estimation? Yeah, so a few years ago, AIDS Action and Fenway Health, which are now part of the same organization actually, um, launched this statewide Getting to Zero Coalition, really focused on the goal of getting to zero new HIV infections, AIDS-related death, and zero HIV-related stigma. And we talk about those three things in, in, in a trio because you really can't tackle prevention without talking about care, without talking about how stigma affects all of that. And so they're really a combination approach. So we put together a statewide coalition to really bring focus on the work that's left to be done on the HIV epidemic. It's it's a, it's a topic you don't see making headlines very often anymore. It feels like it's an issue of the past that was somehow resolved and we just take care of it now. But the reality is the people that are getting infected today, who are not doing well in care, who are not virally suppressed, who are still dying of age-related complications, are some of the most marginalized people you can imagine. And so our job is to make sure that we continue to serve them and make sure we have systemic uh, investments and policies that actually improve their health outcomes and prevent new infections in the first place. Well, particularly with, with a virus that has pushed everything off the front pages for the last year and change. So particularly hard population to have to deal with this, much like cancer patients. I mean, it's like we, hello, we don't want to forget about you. Yeah. And actually because of the COVID pandemic, a lot of the interventions and prevention programs have um, had a more difficult time operating in the HIV space. And we've seen a huge outbreak, frankly, of HIV in the state due to the opioid crisis among people who use drugs. And that's just gotten incredibly worse this year due to the challenge of, of caring for people, reaching them on the streets in the, in the COVID context. So we have, a, we have a pretty big crisis on our hands with HIV actually in that population. And sadly, uh, one of the reasons people are turning to drugs and opiates is uh, to escape the incredible psychological pressure and stress of the disease of COVID-19. So you've got a, a bevy of issues that are at stake here. Before we get too deep into the weeds when it comes to COVID, 
Um, what have you noticed about, and what are patients telling you, those uh, LGBTQ patients, what are they telling you about their experiences on the streets, not inside the clinic, but outside? Uh, do they share with your practitioners what's happening with them? They do. And it's interesting because we're sort of in the middle of this pandemic year. And of course, the middle of the year was the change in federal administration. And and we can't escape the impact of the political climate that we've been living under for the past four years and how it's been uh, really a dark cloud hanging over our community in, in, in lots of ways, uh, access to healthcare just being one of them. Um, and that comes up a lot. I mean, our, our behavioral health clinicians in particular who are supporting our LGBTQ community with mental health services, you know, case management, social work, um, they are literally carrying the, the burden with this community that's just suffered immensely. And, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, really much needed attention on the issues facing racial minority communities in the context of COVID in this past year, the impacts of unemployment and everything that goes along with this pandemic. And the, a lot of the same issues that play out in racial minority communities are playing out heavily in the LGBTQ community as well. So our, our patients um, have really borne the brunt of a lot of this in a way that hasn't quite made headlines, but we're seeing every day in our clinic. Is it up to you and people in your position to speak for them and obviously to tend to their health, but also to advocate for them? Who's advocating for these people, if not for you, let's say? Yeah, there's there's a pretty strong coalition, both in the state and nationally, of LGBTQ-focused organizations and allied organizations. Um, just one example, this past year with the Trump administration's policies, they had uh, proposed a new federal regulation to roll back non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people in the context of healthcare. In the Obamacare era, uh, we had newfound protections, frankly, so that people could get in healthcare and health insurance without discrimination, the Trump administration attempted to roll that back. And so Fenway Health it joined as a plaintiff in a federal lawsuit with a number of other LGBTQ organizations, immigration organizations, and others that were impacted by the federal rulemaking policy. So that's just, that's one area that we hadn't really engaged in before in terms of our advocacy. We're, we're pretty familiar in working on ballot campaigns and state legislative advocacy and lobbying but to file a lawsuit against the federal administration, that was a first for us. And it really right. because, was because of the unprecedented, unprecedented nature of what was happening federally, we felt like we had to take that action. Are people enough aware of the needs of groups that fall into this category? In other words, if, if, you, if you were to take this same discussion to any of the big five hospitals, would they be set up to deal with this population as you are? You know, one of the things that we've prided ourselves on as an organization is we don't just try to care for LGBTQ patients ourselves. We try to spread best practices throughout the city and throughout the country. And we have an education center, which literally does cultural competency trainings for health providers around the country. And, and we've worked with a number of health centers and hospitals and uh, even municipal officials and cities and towns just to make sure that people understand who the LGBTQ people are, what the issues are that they face, how to provide competent care, how to not misgender people that are transgender, how to provide competent HIV care or HIV prevention care. It's There's a whole range of services and care, and we are blessed to have a number of health centers and hospitals around us that have really stepped up the game. And, and Fenway Health used to be the one and only place you could go to as, a, as an LGBTQ person to get 
competent care. That's no longer the case. And that's, from our perspective, a really good thing, actually. You, you asked, I asked a question that I kind of knew the answer to, but I wanted to hear you say it because I've, I've met and worked with so many in the healthcare field in New England, particularly in the Boston market, and I couldn't agree more. There's a, an attention to try to help people. Let's talk about the trans community for a second because that's the headline grabber. Everyone's talking about trans issues these days. I have no idea about the numbers in terms of population, but these people face obvious challenges just in day-to-day life, living among us, uh, among all of us. Additional health challenges, what are they? What are they facing? It's kind of a remarkable journey the transgender community has gone through, even in the last five and 10 years, with the level of increased visibility and awareness. Uh, You know, I started, I was in the legislature before my current role at Fenway working on trans rights in the state house. And when we started working on state non-discrimination legislation uh, in 2007, very, very few people were aware of uh, even who trans people were. You know, you didn't have uh, Caitlyn Jenner out in public. You didn't have Chaz Bono dancing with the stars. You just didn't have the kind of visibility. Part of what's come along with the visibility in the last 10 years is the community has come out of the woodworks and really found its own voice and its own advocacy. And and so I always am cautious not to speak on behalf of the trans community because they have such amazing community leaders. But within Fenway, we've seen the demand for our trans health services really explode in the last decade. We're now around 4,000 transgender patients that we serve just as one facility. We're probably one of the largest trans health providers in the country at this point. Um, And transgender individuals like everybody need comprehensive, competent care, the whole range of health needs that everyone needs, but they also need trans-specific care and services. And and those kinds of services are not often provided with competency at at a lot of other facilities around the country. So again, that's where our training program comes in, but also our direct care and services. Um, One thing that's been remarkable for the trans community in particular this year, if there's a weird gift that's come along with COVID, it's that it's allowed us to do telehealth services the regulatory environment has relaxed and allowed every health provider to do telehealth in a way that we couldn't do a year ago. Um, and right now we are seeing that we are serving transgender patients literally around the country from here at Fenway through trans health, through telehealth. And we couldn't have done that a year ago in the same way. And, and when I think about who we serve in the Boston market and I look around the country at rural communities and underserved communities, places where there isn't a Fenway health in their backyard, we have a whole world of people that are not yet accessing competent care that we can begin to think about how to reach them more intentionally through telehealth. So that's something we're really excited about, frankly. So you're reaching people in, as you say, the hinterlands who prior to this technology would not have been connected like this. That, that's right. And, and what we don't know yet, because we're doing that work under relaxed regulations because of COVID, because of the emergency declarations that have been issued across the country and federally. We don't know when this pandemic is over exactly how the regulatory environment will shape out and how Mm. telehealth will continue. But everyone promises us from the top down that telehealth will continue. Um, But we need to see some action in Congress actually to make sure that that is really the case. And so it's something we're watching very closely, but it's, it's such an innovative and creative way to provide access to people that don't otherwise have it. And we see that especially with marginalized communities where the need for competent care is so much more important and so much more difficult to find in much of the country at this point. One final question or comment, and that is the staff that's in place. I know Fenway Health has been around for a long time. 
This has been one of the most trying years in medical career history, no question, across the board. How has your staff held up, and has there been turnover? Have there been issues that you have had uh, real challenges facing? Tell us a little bit more about the team. Yeah, and I think our story is is, um, consistent with what we're seeing at health centers across the city and state and country at this point. It is a combination of absolute exhaustion, fatigue, and burnout combined with remarkable resilience and hope and creativity all in the same bag of uh, a single day, right? Right. So you have the same people that are really struggling to get through yet another day with yet another exhaustion of um, this business. This has been a year of constant change, you know, from the first moment of lockdowns and shutdowns and quarantining and social distancing to turning on telehealth as a service, literally overnight, um, to doing COVID testing in really difficult conditions when we're trying to keep our staff and patients safe, having to do things outdoors and tents through really inclement weather, which required constant change of where we're doing our testing operation. Now with the vaccination efforts, which we learn week by week, how many vaccines we're gonna have available for the next week and how we triage our patients through that system. It is, it is a, we are, we are trying to keep our staff um, whole and supported while they are trying to care for our patients who need us in some ways more than we could have ever imagined. Uh, living in a global pandemic is playing out on a human level and plus not insignificant. I myself and many of my colleagues are now shifted entirely to remote work. And so we're living like this podcast where we're living in TV land where we get to work with each other through, through I, I joke at Zoom is now TV. Um, we're working in TV land while many of our colleagues are still in the clinic and you know putting their themselves, um, their bodies literally on the line to right. go to work and be right. in the spaces. And we have, make sure we have the right infection control procedures and, and safety procedures in place to keep everyone safe. And that's knock on wood, been very successful for us. We, we can't say it enough how appreciative we are of everyone in the industry that's done more than more than yeoman's work since this all started. And uh, they don't even question it. They do it. Uh, one final, final thing, and that is, what would you like to say to anyone in the LGB community, whether they be in the Boston market or anywhere in the country, about where they are in terms of healthcare, what advice do you have if they're having difficulty, if they're not able to connect, if they feel they're being snubbed, if they feel they're being neglected? Uh, there are issues like that that occur sadly every day. What advice do you have for those individuals? I would say two things. And I think we learned uh, immensely from the HIV and AIDS epidemic over the last 35 years about the importance, number one, of advocating for yourself, of identifying what your own needs are and expecting high quality care that is competent, non-discriminatory and respectful of your inherent worth and dignity like anybody else, that you should expect that from your healthcare provider and be able to have frank and open conversations, number one. And number two, not everyone has the place in their life where that is something they're comfortable doing in terms of advocating for themselves. So there are places like Fenway Health and others around the country that can assist, that can provide competent care, that can provide health navigation, that can provide behavioral health support services. And so you're not alone. You have people that can actually help you find the care that is right for you. And if you're not getting good care where you are, leave. There are options and places like Fenway are here to help you make sure that you get the care that you need and deserve to stay healthy. It's a great message of hope. And uh, thank you for doing what you're doing, not only here announcing it all to us, but every day in the trenches. We really appreciate it, Carl. Much appreciated. Thank you for the conversation and for the focus you bring into this. Nice to talk to you. 
Thank you for joining us today for our Equity in Healthcare series within the We Are ACHE of Massachusetts podcast series. Today's podcast is brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives, the Massachusetts chapter. If you're looking to grow your career, then consider joining other leaders in healthcare and becoming an American College of Healthcare Executives member. There are many benefits to joining the Massachusetts chapter of ACHE. You'll be among the leaders in healthcare, gaining knowledge and skill sets that will help you grow professionally and excel at your job. You'll enjoy greater satisfaction and the potential to enhance your career. And you'll be giving back to your profession in positive and inspiring ways. As a member of ACHE, you'll join more than 48,000 healthcare leaders from across the United States and the world who are dedicated to improving healthcare and advancing the profession of healthcare management. Visit ACHE.org slash membership. That's ACHE.org slash membership.